Well, welcome, Triumph, into my dining room. Uh, right below where this camera is is my dining room table, and so I'm I'm happy to be able to welcome you into Marion and my in my home. You know, uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Uh, words by Joni Mitchell that have been ringing in my head this past week. You know, sometimes you don't appreciate certain things until they are no longer there uh, or you have experienced a time without them. This past November, I was in Nicaragua with our mission team uh, visiting our sister church in, uh, right outside of Managua. And one of the things uh, that I was not necessarily prepared for uh, and, and felt like I really missed was, was when using the, using the facilities that I had to use my, uh, had to put my used tissue paper in a receptacle, not necessarily right in the, in the toilet. And that was something to get used to. And, and now I'm, I'm literally just happy for toilet paper at this point. Right. Um, I mean, there have been so many things that I have been missing or I, that I didn't even know how much uh, they meant to me until things changed just a few weeks ago. I, I don't think I realized how much I rely on human interaction. I miss you guys. I miss being with you. I miss bro-hugging and even Christian side-hugging. I miss handshakes. I miss high-fives. I, I honestly just miss... A simple conversation uh, in person. Um, I never thought of such basic things in this way, but it, it is a blessing to have those in our lives. And I never thought about human interaction as a blessing until these past few weeks. Mary and I have been taking walks uh, each day to just get out of the house a little bit. And uh, we live pretty close to uh, to the river here in, in Moorhead. And uh, and so she kind of said, hey, maybe we should just take a walk down to Gooseberry Park. It's beautiful and nice. And I said, yeah, I mean, that kind of sounds good. But um, but what what if we uh, what if we just walk through our neighborhood instead? And the truth of the matter is, is that I had my ulterior motive, which was I, I was hoping that we would run into somebody that we knew because I just wanted to have that interaction. You know, I have been humbled during this period to realize how many things that I do have in the midst of losing the things that I took for granted. And with that humility, I have uh, realized how small I am in the midst of all of the things that are happening within this world and the, the grand scheme of things, and even more so when I think about my relationship to God. You know, Pastor Burns shared this past week how strong and how mighty um, God is. And I couldn't help but, but find myself in that same boat as, as he did in thinking about the magnitude and the magnificence of our God. Today, as we begin uh, Holy Week, we are going to be talking about Jesus and his journey to the cross um, you know, these last couple Sundays that you've been tuning in or whenever you've been watching this during the week, uh, we've been pretty intentional about taking a break from what we were previously preaching on uh, to be able to talk on certain matters that we knew um, that not only we were feeling, um, but we knew our, our community and, and our church family 
we're feeling. And so, uh, so we've been intentional about thinking about messages that specifically uh, attune to our situation right now. Um, but as we thought about these upcoming two weeks with Palm Sunday and Easter and, and Holy Week and the, and the messages that we normally have during that week, we realized that, you know, we needed to hear the story and the journey that Jesus took for us uh, and the hope that we can really find in it. And so I would like for us to turn to our Palm Sunday text because that is what we are today here on Palm Sunday. So we're going to look at the account from the Gospel of John. It, uh, it takes place in chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And I'd like for us to read that together. Uh, we're going to have that on the screen. But if you want to open up your Bibles, if you have them on your lap or next to you on the couch or wherever you're watching this, then you can also follow along with us there. But starting in verse 12, it says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things that had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had not heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You know, this account of Jesus entering uh, into Jerusalem is one that clearly has a lot of significance and is one of great importance. And, and one of the reasons that we know this is because uh, the fact that this account, this story, uh, takes place in all four gospel accounts. It's not only here in the Gospel of John, but it's also in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. Now, the account that we just read that might not have as many details as maybe some of the other Gospels do, but, but what it instead primarily focuses on uh, is on the crowds and the disciples' uh, reactions. Now, there were a lot of crowds in Jerusalem at this time because many people were traveling there uh, to celebrate the, the, the festival of Passover. Um, you know, these, these festivals uh, really served as a very important uh, part of uh, religious importance and obedience. And, and so many Jews were there and, and they probably were even camping on the outskirts uh, of town um, during this time. Um, you know, many people believe that that Jerusalem's population during this time was somewhere between, you know, 50 and 100,000 people. And, but during the festivals, and especially one like Passover, uh, they would see Jerusalem and the, and, the, and the area right around it swell to even double, triple, and, and some even think even bigger than, than that. And, and so the city was not made for a population like this. And so as a result of this, we, we have people... I mean, all over the place, when they're visiting, their, their residences are on the hillside surrounding the city. 
And I could just think of this picture. I mean, think about it yourself, right? Uh, this is the scenario. If you see this city and, and all of these like residences being built on the, on the outskirts surrounding it, right? This is the scenario. This is the scene in which Jesus rides in onto, uh, rides into on his donkey. And we have this scene as Jesus enters where the crowds are waving palm branches. And, you know, as they knew he was coming and, and they had witnessed uh, some of his power before this. Uh, it's interesting that they're using palm branches. Palm branches in particular were, were something uh, that were abundant in the land of Israel. And, and their use here could point out to some other significant symbolism. You know, palms were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Uh, when temples were being rededicated, uh, they used palm branches in the celebration. Uh, during the wars with, with Rome, uh, they, palms were stamped on coins uh, minted by the rebels. And so this waving of palm branches symbolizes something more in certain people's minds than the Messiah entering into Jerusalem. You know, this symbolized Israel's nationalist kind of hopes with almost a uh, political undertone here. A proclamation that Jesus was the one that was coming to establish a new kingdom. And as they wave these palm branches, as we look back into our text, as they wave those palm branches in the air, it says that they cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now that, that word Hosanna uh, is one that's filled with a ton of meaning. And I like for us to look at a little bit here. Uh, in the New Testament that we are reading, we, we should understand that it was not initially written in English. It was initially written in uh, Greek. And our Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so uh, when we look at our English translations of the word Hosanna, uh, where, where it shows up, it, uh, we have to recognize that in the, in the original Greek language, uh, it's that, actually that same word. All of the English translators did was they took the Greek letters and they just turned them into English letters. Now, what's interesting about that is if you were to go into a Greek dictionary, uh, you would recognize that actually the Greeks did the same exact thing. Uh, if you look uh, at what they translated as, uh, they took a Hebrew word and they translated that into, into Greek by just using Greek letters instead of uh, Hebraic or Hebrew letters. And so the word Hosanna that we know actually comes from one place in the Old Testament. And uh, we read that earlier in our service and it comes from Psalm uh, chapter 118, verse 25, where it says, Lord, save us. You know, the, the word in, in that Hebrew is the word Hoshanai. At this time in the Old Testament, when we look at that word Hosanna, save us, it was said in, in light of a prayer. Um, this is an exclamation of a prayer or a pleading. It's almost as though people are crying out when they said this in Psalm 118, Lord, save us, God. You know, I, I don't know how you hear that right now, but maybe you can identify with this type of meaning. Maybe you're just crying out 
to God. Asking for him to save you from your situation. You know, I think there are times in our lives where we enter into this posture asking God in a a pleading and prayerful way for deliverance. Pleading and praying for the situation to change or, or, or at least to be remedied. You know, maybe we plead because the situation that we are in warrants that or or maybe we're just pleading and praying because we're just tired of the grind. We're tired of the situation that we are in. You know, all of a sudden, many of us have been thrown into an environment uh, that we were not previously working in. You know, maybe some of us were, but I don't think we probably had all of the different uh, things that we were going through. We probably weren't homeschooling our kids. Uh, they probably weren't used to video. Uh, we weren't working from home. We weren't working with our spouses from home. We have all of these different situations uh, that have been thrust upon us with the fact of being isolated from the people that we care for most. I think there are a lot of people in our world right now who are asking the question, like, why? Why is this happening? Or maybe they're, they're just pleading for God and maybe you're, you're with them right now. For God to just literally intervene and, and in some miraculous way to take all this away and especially all of the suffering that's happening. I mean, I think we all tend to struggle with understanding the role of suffering. That why, why does it happen and why doesn't God just take it away? But I think it's important for us that as followers of Jesus, uh, that we should have a different perspective on this. Our text really is a true triumphal entry. Um, But this is not a triumphal entry of a conquering king who's riding on a horse into a city to establish his new kingdom or his throne, but instead it's a king that's riding on a donkey, a sign of peace, heading to a cross of suffering because of his deep love for us. Christianity's defining symbol is the cross where Jesus was crucified at the peak of his ministry. You know, it's interesting to think that at the center of a religion of hope and joy and love, you find an image that's representing death and pain. Uh, Martin Luther is a theologian, and he had some pretty profound thoughts when it came to the cross and our understanding of sometimes this paradox that we're seeing, that this this, this symbol uh, that was that kind of often is expressed as hope, joy, and love is sometimes expressed as we see it as, as really death and, and pain. And, and he saw the cross as not only a mechanism for how uh, salvation was brought into this world for, sinner, for sinners, but it was also an explanation or the guiding principle of our lives and, and how God actually acts. You know, he came to believe that God always works under the opposite and that we see this most clearly in the crucifixion where we see victory being one in the midst of defeat and we see life being brought through death to this point martin luther said this he said god receives none but those who are forsaken he restores health to none but those who are sick gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none 
but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. What he talked about as a theology of the cross and a, and a term that he often used uh, is that it, it contradicts what we normally think about when, uh, when it comes to life and when it comes to God. That we normally think that God is most present when we are being blessed. That it is when we have achieved something or we have been given something or, or we have been given an opportunity or we seem as though we are at our strongest that we acknowledge that God is there. That when we see the best of ourselves on display, then we think that God is really uh, alive and his evidence in our life is, is most clear. But what a theology of the cross shows us is that it's in our weaknesses. It is in our defeat that God is most present. That God is working in the world when it feels as though the whole world is falling apart. When we see the limitations of our own lives, when it becomes clear every day that I'm not super dad, that I'm not super mom, I'm not super employee, able to conquer all of the world. And this is where God most enters in. You know, it is not when I think that the possibilities are endless, but more when I see the limitations of my own self that I come to see Christ most clearly. This is why he has come. So I mentioned how Hosanna had this connotation of, uh, of a pleading or pleaful prayer uh, when it was first being used, when we find it in the context of, of our psalm. What's interesting to note is that this word actually changed um, in, in its connotation over time. As, 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 as history progressed, we see it actually taking on, uh, on a different meaning. As time progressed and as time went on, we see that this word kind of more moving into this, this idea or, or this meaning of salvation or salvation has come. That salvation is here. Those people crowding around Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem were thinking of him as one who raised Lazarus from the dead. They did not see that true fulfillment that was actually still supposed to come as he journeys to the cross. What see what looked like defeat was actually victory. Interesting, interestingly, the word for save in Hebrew is the word yasha. And it's actually the same root for the word uh, Yahshua or Yeshua, which is where we get the name for Jesus which means Yahweh, or God, saves. So as they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, it is though almost, it's, it's almost as if they are shouting on that day without even knowing it. Jesus us. Jesus us. I know I'm shouting that today. Lord Jesus, us. Jesus, us. As we say, Hosanna, today, we have the knowledge that he has answered our prayer for salvation through what we deem as foolishness. 
You know, uh, we have certain ideas of what certain words mean. We think about God's power and we think about the mighty acts. But what's interesting is if you want to see where, where God's power is most on display, it's in the cross. When we think about words like wisdom, we think, man, how am I just going to figure out how to make the church survive at a time like this? Or, or how can I figure out best to serve my family during this time? Or how am I going to make sure my, my small business stays arise during this time? And, and we, we, we think about wisdom as somebody being able to figure out all of those things. But when we talk about God's wisdom, we see where is it displayed most? It's displayed on the cross. As we hear these words from 1 Corinthians, I want you to be thinking about these things and let them resonate and, and, and flow over you. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 30, and it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, through, uh, for, the, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. See, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were from noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's often when, when most is stripped away from someone that they recognize what truly is important. I, I know that's true uh, for me. That when these other things have been stripped away, I have clung to Christ and, and clung to his word because I know that is the source of truth and hope in a time like this. I hope in these moments you are clinging to Christ, you are clinging to his, his word, and you are clinging to the hope and the assurance that we have of not only life now with him, but life eternally. Amen. Amen.